Okay, so we're, today we're looking at Hebrews 11, <laughs> the second half of Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 40. Um, yeah, okay. So there are handouts right here. They're not very elaborate, but at least it's something to show you where we're going. Um, so in 410 AD, this is kind of a nerdy illustration to begin with, but this guy named Alaric, he is a fearless leader of the Goths, and he sacked Rome and effectively toppled what was arguably the greatest nation that our world has ever seen. By this point, Rome was very Christianized. This is like 500 years after Jesus. Um, and this superstition spread throughout the civilization and pervaded into the church that the destruction of their beloved empire was caused by the angry Roman gods whom they abandoned in the name of Jesus. So amidst this fear, there was a huge temptation to retreat away from the Christian church and back to these Roman gods. And so this temptation that was plaguing the church occasioned St. Augustine to write his phenomenal work, The City of God. The people of Augustine's day were very short-sighted. They were looking to what was immediately in front of them to teach them about God and his kingdom. And the Jewish Christians to whom Hebrews is being written were not much different. We know that they were facing huge persecution for their faith, having their possessions plundered, their families abandoned them, and even their lives threatened. And so they were looking around at these circumstances, and they let what was right in front of them dictate that Jesus must not be worth following. They were tempted to go back to Judaism because they were short-sighted. And I think our pastor has this short-sightedness in mind when he writes chapter 11. So I want to read it for us, our verses, because I just think it's helpful. So... Chapter 11, verses 23 through 40. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Okay, I'm going to pray quickly. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for this beautiful text before us. Um, I just pray you would remove my anxiety and nerves and that you would just speak um, through me to us today um, and point us to Jesus. Show us your love in Christ through this passage today. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so in order to understand this passage better, I think we really should go back to chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. It says, Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This pastor is urging his Jewish Christian audience to endure in the face of the persecution they are feeling. Remember, this is a group of new Christians at the very beginning of church history who are feeling tempted to abandon the church because the going is getting very hard. He is exhorting them to endure and to keep fighting because Jesus is worth it. Immediately after telling them they have need of endurance, he turns to the subject of faith in 11.1 and gives them a definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he tells them a story. He tells them their story and our story, a story that they would be would have been very familiar with. I think he tells them this story for three reasons that we're going to dive into today. First, and this is like probably the biggest picture here, looking at like the whole book of Hebrews, right? I think he writes this story to show them that their ancestors under the old covenant related to God in the very same way that we do in the new covenant, by faith and not by animal sacrifice. I mean, literally the the phrase by faith is used 17 times in this chapter. These people were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant, and he has gone through painstaking details, as we've studied all year, in this letter to show them that there is nothing to go back to. They have a fundamental misunderstanding of the way the Israelites lived because the blood of bulls and goats was never sufficient atonement for their sins. They weren't relying on that. They were trusting in faith, looking to God's promised Messiah. And even more, they didn't receive the promise until Christ came. They live by faith in what they could not see. So second, I think he tells them the story to give them a perspective of faith that produces endurance. And finally, I think he tells them the story to show them that faith in the living God produces action, which results in obedience. Sorry, which results in endurance. So the basic formula is, I wrote it on your sheet, I think, faith plus obedience equals endurance. And he shows them this by examining the endurance of Moses the endurance of who I'm going to call the faithful, and finally, the endurance of God's promise. So first we're going to look at the endurance of Moses, verse 23 through 28. So our passage today picks up in this middle of the story, this huge story of faith that he's been telling. We've studied last week and this week. Um, and this is a critical moment in Israel's history, as you all know. They've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years when Moses is born. And the king of Egypt has grown increasingly hostile toward the Israelites. So hostile, in fact, that he's created this mandate to try to kill off God's people altogether, declaring that all Hebrew babies, all Hebrew male babies must be murdered because he's trying to make it so that there's an entire generation, right, of only females and then they couldn't repopulate and then God's people would effectively become extinct. So this is the scene into which Moses is born. And our text tells us in verse 23 that his parents, by faith, break the law. And they don't don't drown their son, but they spare his life instead. You see, Moses' parents understand that this edict is antithetical to the heart of God. The God who opened Sarah's womb when she was far beyond the age of conceiving and promised to redeem the world through the seed of Abraham and who spared the life of Isaac is a God who loves children so much that he promised to save the world through a child of this line. So they boldly spare their son's life, trusting that this promise-making God is faithful to keep his promises. So faithful that he might even use this baby boy to redeem the world. 
Their assurance of God's promises give them a perspective of faith and it spared their son's life. And then we know that by divine providence, Moses goes down the river and he's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. And he's raised in the royal family as her son. And we know that even though he had the privileges and the status of an Egyptian, he was actually nursed and instructed by the Hebrews during his childhood. He was raised in a community of faith. And as a mother of young children, I love this part of the story. I mean, how beautiful is it that this pastor begins his portrait of Moses' faith by describing the faith his parents had on his behalf? How wonderful that faith is generational like this. Let this be an encouragement to all the moms, grandmothers, aunts, teachers, and even nursery volunteers in the room. The seeds you are sowing matter. This should exhort us to boldly proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to our children. Because there will, this is where their story of faith begins too. Okay, so when Moses is 40 years old, these two realities of his life, right? His status as Egyptian royalty and this community of faith that he was brought up in, they finally conflict when he witnesses an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew and he kills the Egyptian. And the next day he kind of goes out and he realizes that people like know that he murdered this guy and he has a choice to make. Either he can identify with his adopted grandfather, Pharaoh, and kind of like get a pardon, you know, for killing this guy, or he can side with the oppressed Israelites, the chosen people of God. And the text tells us in verse 25 that he chooses the mistreatment of God with the people of God instead of the fleeting pleasure of sin, because he considered the reproach of Christ greater reward than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He makes the choice of faith. Sorry, my mouth is so dry. He chooses to identify with God's people and their mistreatment instead of the pleasurable life as an Egyptian. But he doesn't make this choice arbitrarily. In verse 26, we see it tells us he made this choice after consideration. He thinks. He looks at his options. He looks to what he knows about God and his promises to redeem the world through this nation. And he chooses the reproach of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He knows that it is far better to choose the enduring promises of God than the fleeting pleasures of this world. And then Moses leaves. He leaves Egypt, and he chooses to identify with the Israelites. And he, So he chooses to identify with the Israelites, and he knows that this means he's going to be killed for killing an Egyptian. So he's got to go. He's got to leave to spare his own life. And in verse 27, it says, He left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The author highlights for us twice that Moses has a vision of faith. He is looking to the reward. He saw him who is invisible. He was able to endure because he placed his identity on being a chosen one of God's people and of God's redemptive promises by looking to that invisible one who had been promised in the garden after the curse and again to Abraham. Moses endured as the leader of the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery because he had a faith that looked to Jesus. He had an eternal perspective and an assurance that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. I think it's important to pause here in the story and point out that the author is making an interpretive change about the story of Moses, specifically about him being afraid. So when you go back and read the original story in Exodus 2, verse 14, it says that Moses actually did feel very afraid to leave Egypt. Um, And there's some arguing, and you know, you can go read a million commentaries, they're going to tell you a million things about this, but here's where I came out. I think that the author is making an intentional decision um, to change this, to say that Moses did not fear Pharaoh, to teach us something about faith. I think he's showing us that Moses' feelings are not what define his faith. His actions did. Even though he feels afraid to stand up to Pharaoh, he does it anyway. 
demonstrating that he values what he knew to be true about God and his promises more than the fear of this man. I think this is a very valuable lesson for us today in an age where our feelings trump pretty much everything else. I mean, I know this is a big hang-up for me when it comes to faithful obedience. (laughs) If I'm being honest, the conversation normally goes something like, do I want to do it? Nope. Then I guess God isn't, (laughs) I guess God probably isn't asking me to. Like, hey God, you know, if you really want me to do this, give me a heart for it, and then I'll do it, you know. I mean, but the author of Hebrews is showing us that that's not what faith that leads to endurance looks like. Faith, according to Hebrews, means that we are looking to God and to obey his commandments despite how we are feeling. I think this is because obedience works in two ways. So in one way, you know, you have this great vision of faith and you trust God enough that you want to obey him, trusting that through obedience, you know, it will lead for your good and his glory. But I think faith also works. I mean, obedience also can work in such a way that even when we don't have that good side of faith, even when we can't trust God or aren't trusting God, that if we obey him anyway, we will grow, as the hymn says, to see him more clearly and to love him more nearly, as we see the fruitfulness of such obedience in our lives. So even when you're feeling scared or anxious or frustrated with God in an area where he is calling you to love someone else sacrificially or to give more of your time or your money or your energy, We can feel confident looking to Jesus and trusting that our faith is growing as we obey him more and more. Okay, so that's the endurance of Moses. Now let's look at the endurance of the faithful in verses 29 through 38. So after telling us the story about Moses and his faithful endurance, the pastor rushes, like literally rushes. I tried to imitate that in my reading of it. I hope that came across on to the rest of Israel's story. He uses a literary technique that was common in ancient Greek literature where you run through a list really quickly to urge your hearers to action. Remember, we're getting to the end of Hebrews. He's been writing all of this, and now he's like, okay, you got to do something with this. So he's showing them example after example, highlighting the summation of Israel's history. He starts with the huge, miraculous, and redemptive moment of God parting the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross from captivity into freedom, as promised. And then he moves on to the equally miraculous redemptive moment where God tears the walls of Jericho down so that the people can conquer their promised land. He uses these two events to show that God graciously gives his people what he's promised them. In this case, freedom and a land to call their own. And then he rushes on and he highlights everyone from the patriarchs to the prophets, including judges and kings, a Gentile prostitute and Jews who lived during the intertestamental period of the Maccabean revolt. The point he is trying to make is that endurance requires obedience, and obedience requires action. It is no mistake that there are 13 active verbs used here to describe their obedience. They crossed the Red Sea. They encircled the walls. They gave friendly welcome to spies. They conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. I could keep going, but I won't. We see a rich and beautiful portrait of faith. Obedience in the face of triumph and in the face of death. And obedience in the face of flourishing and in the face of immense persecution. No doubt that our persecuted audience would see themselves in the last verses as he shifts from demonstrating faith expressed in great hardship. He's reminding them that they are not alone in their plight, but that the faithful people of God who were used to carry along this promise were also mocked and flogged. They were also chained and imprisoned. Jeremiah, the great prophet, was stoned. And Isaiah, it's rumored, was sawn in two. 
Other prophets were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. He is running through this list quickly to urge his hearers to action. But I think it's important to stop for a second and remember that these are real people. This stuff really happened. Like Moses, they had fears, and they had doubts, and they had anxiety while staring down God's promises. They sinned, and they messed up. And some of them in, like, really big ways, like David and his, like, murder-adultery combo, remember? But these things aren't what they're being remembered for here. These people were weak, but their God was not. The author of Hebrews is saying that despite all of the downfalls and ugliness that we can read about these people in the Old Testament, God commends them for the stuff he's mentioning right here, for their faith and for their obedience. This is a representative list of the people of God to highlight what they have in common, their assurance of the promises of God for his people. We see this in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept relief so that they might rise again to a better life. Whether they lived triumphantly or they died triumphantly, each and every one of them was looking forward to the great promise of God. They had the side of faith. Okay. Sorry. Okay, so now we're going to move on from the endurance of the faithful to look at the endurance of this promise and then see how that should shape our endurance. Okay, so this promise that I'm talking about, this promise carries the whole narrative of the Old Testament. It starts in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, and then it goes on to Genesis 12, the seed of Abraham, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, Daniel 7, the coming of the Son of Man, and from the Psalms, a king whose rule reign would be from the east to the west and the north to the south, and whose dominion would know no end. The text says that Moses saw him who was invisible. He correctly saw God and the eternal reward in Christ and valued that more than the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. And this enabled him to obey and to endure. But we get to see someone who Moses couldn't see. We get to see the person who Moses' entire life was pointing to. We see someone who, like Moses, left his royal throne and came down to his own people and was rejected. Except this time it was even worse. His people rejected him in the most ultimate sense. We killed him. We have the privilege of seeing that this rejection of Moses that led led to the redemption of the Israelites from slavery, but that this rejection from the greater Moses led to the redemption of all of God's people from their sin. We get to see the plan of God fulfilled in a way that Moses didn't and couldn't. As this same pastor wrote in Hebrews 3, instead of the servant of God's house, Moses, we get to see the son of God's house, Jesus. We don't just see the physical redemption from a life of enslavement. We see a spiritual redemption to a life of righteousness, a restored relationship with the living God. We see the one whose blood is able to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, and whose blood gives us confidence to enter the holy places by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. We look to Jesus, as he's about to say in the coming verses, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. But we don't just see this suffering servant who lived a perfect life of of obedience and conquered death itself by his resurrection. We don't just see him. We are united to him. We get to call him brother and friend. We have a privilege that Moses didn't have, that these faithful didn't have. We know how the story ends. We stand with the Apostolic Church today around the world on Ash Wednesday and begin the season of Lent looking back to the cross and the resurrection. In verses 39 and 40, we see the author saying this to his Hebrew audience. And all these, though commended through their faith, they didn't receive what was promised 
Because God provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You have received something better than every single one of these faithful mentioned here. We have something superior to every Old Testament believer and all of them put together because we are united to the risen Jesus. There's an inherent logic built into these verses. If all of these faithful people of God endured and persevered and obeyed in the face of great trial and without receiving what was promised, how much more can you endure and persevere and obey in the face of difficult circumstances? This reminds me of chapter 10 that we just read, 26 to 31, a few weeks ago. He says it's far worse to reject the Christ's atoning work on the cross than it was to reject the law of Moses because we have a greater privilege. All of the people mentioned here did incredible things through faith, looking to the promised one of God who would one day redeem his people from their sins. But now we get to call ourselves the chosen people of God who are made perfect by the blood of Christ. The point here is not to say, wow, how great was Moses, or how great was David, or how great was Daniel. I wish I could have that faith. The point is to say, wow, look at their God. You don't need Moses' faith. You need Moses' Savior. It's never about the strength of your faith, and it wasn't about the strength of your faith. It's about the strength of who our faith is in. Each of these faithful ones knew that we serve a promise-making God who is faithful to keep his promises. And in light of that, they obeyed, and their obedience led to endurance, even though they did not receive the promise. Sinclair Ferguson says, They never found the destiny for which they were aiming. But we have. We have received the promise, and we must live in light of this. We must realize our privilege. Okay, so our lack of faith and our disobedience and our inability to endure stems from our inability to recognize this great privilege as co-heirs with Christ and as citizens of heaven. We see this theme in 1113, right before our passage, which is a key verse for understanding what makes the faith of the patriarchs commendable. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. They all identified as aliens on this earth. They understood that they were chosen by God for something bigger than what they could see in front of them. How often do you value your privilege as an American more than your privilege as a citizen in God's kingdom? How frequently do you feel more comfortable at a church function than in your neighborhood? Do you struggle to find more in common with a Christian of a different race or socioeconomic status or political party than with a non-believer who looks like you and shares your ideologies? How quickly do you jump to defend the United States versus how quickly you jump to defend the kingdom of God? The same professor in seminary, Dr. Ferguson, he used to say, what can Congress do for you after you died? Nothing but tax you. (laughs) Pretty funny and true. And yet, so often, we esteem our American privileges above our heavenly one. No wonder we struggle to obey. We have a vision problem. Often we look around at our circumstances and we think, we either think two things, I think. We either think, this isn't so bad, right? I mean, like, we're privileged Americans, whatever. And so that can lead us to fall into this apathetic pattern toward obedience, afraid that it might make our lives less comfortable, if we're being honest. 
Or we look around in some of our difficult circumstances and we can see brokenness and we see pain and we see chaos. We see loneliness and discontentment. And we think, God can't be here. This can't be what it looks like to follow God. The Jewish Christian audience of this letter was certainly experiencing the latter. And he tells them, you're wrong. You are inheritors of the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. And you are marked by the blood of God himself. You share in all the riches of Christ as he rules the earth from the right hand of the Father. He is with you in your suffering and you are not put to shame. The side of faith pushes you as a Christian to obedience and ultimately endurance by enabling you to see that there is more going on than what you can see in front of you. As we see here in this beautiful story of faith, the endurance of God's promise until its fruition in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God uses our faithful obedience. These very moments where we look beyond our circumstances and press forward, looking to him who is invisible, he uses this to bring about his kingdom. We see here in this passage that God takes what is ordinary and he makes it extraordinary, like smearing blood on doorposts to spare the lives of many, or parting an ocean to walk across on dry land, or marching around a city so that its walls come crumbling down, stopping the mouths of lions, right? Or even raising the dead in resurrection. He uses our ordinary obedience to miraculously change each of our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and to make us look more like him. And as we go out into the world in faith, he uses our obedience to redeem this world, little by little. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that in response to this crisis experienced by many in the church after the fall of the Roman Empire, St. Augustine wrote a glorious work that I recommend to all, although it's really long and really dense, and it's called The City of God. It is beautiful. It is a beautiful, very lengthy defense of the Christian faith, where he challenges these doubters not to define the invisible heavenly city of God by what they can see in the visible, corrupted, and ruined earthly city they're staring at. Okay, of the two cities, he writes this. Listen carefully. This is a very short quote, but it is, like everything he says, just beautiful. The heavenly city outshines Rome beyond comparison. There, instead of victory, is truth. Instead of high rank, holiness. Augustine is saying that God hasn't promised us physical victory, popularity, or even comfort in this life. But what he has done is make us people of truth and holiness. God's kingdom is backwards from this world. And in order to obey, we must look beyond our circumstances to have the sight of faith that looks to Jesus. The better fulfillment of God's promise through whom we are made perfect with the saints who've come before Let me pray. Okay, uh, dear Lord, we just pray that you would give us the side of faith that you gave to so many who come before, that you gave to Moses and to all of these great patriarchs, prophets. Lord, we praise you that you have caused your promise to endure and it met its fulfillment in your son. We thank you that you humbled yourself in the incarnation to take on flesh. You lived a life of perfect obedience and you died on our behalf and you rose again to better life and we pray that we would see Jesus 
in the midst of our difficult circumstances, or even our okay circumstances, that we would see that our citizenship in heaven is better than our citizenship on this earth, and that it would press us to endure and to obey and to have faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.